Did anybody uh, play that game at school where you would close your eyes and put your hand over your chest like this and your friend would say, fall backwards, trust me and I'll catch you. Just hands up, just anybody, anybody who done that? Yeah. I'm not going to ask whether your friend caught you or not. But the, the process is simple really. Um, if you trust your friend, you'll fall back. You'll do what they say. Uh, and if your trust isn't misplaced, then they will catch you. Whether you fall back or not is intrinsically tied to the character of the person that says, I'll catch you. There's a request and there's a promise. And so it is here in Genesis 12. This is about the faithful God and his promise of restoration. And the basis of trust that Abraham had was God's word and his faithful character. That video that we watched was really, really helpful in giving us some context and background as to where we've been and where we are. <laughs> Essentially, Genesis 3 to 11, there have been uh, cycles of sin, rebellion, judgment, and then God in his grace. But the direction has generally been southerly. It's been in decline, as we've just seen. Um, and it ends up where we've just seen the judgment of the nations uh, and God scattering them. And so the question is, uh, the question that was left to us on the video, where will restoration come from? Where's the promised snake crusher that we read about in Genesis 3.15? And will the decline continue? And if not, where, where's hope to be found? And there's actually a flicker of hope in fact, great hope in the passage that we just read, the, the genealogy, everybody's favorite passages in the Bible, Genesis 11, 10 to 27. The genealogy essentially mirrors Genesis 5, but in a much more positive way. And you can compare this later when you're at home. But the one in Genesis 5 had the refrain added, and he died, and he died, and he died. And the writer was emphasizing that the power and the penetration of the curse and it's not included in the, in the genealogy that we've just read. Now, obviously, they died. But actually, the author is wanting, wanting us to see a more positive spin. And there are lots and lots of other uh, positives, too. The amount of generations that there were in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah were 10. And were to see Noah as another Adam. The same in this. The generations from Shem to Abram are 10. We're to see that, that it is mirroring Genesis 5 except in a more positive way. So we don't have time to go into this deeper, um, but just to summarize that, that it, the writer's trying to contrast for us, this is, this is moving in a positive direction, which leads us nicely into our passage. But just before that, we've got Genesis 11, 27 to 31. And here the narrative really slows down. So we've gone from the, the nations of the world in Genesis 10, the table of nations. We've now just slimmed in a bit to the line of Shem, the 10 generations that we've just seen, and now we've zoomed into one family, the family of terror. And in this, it gives us a kind of a, a, a bio of, of each of the characters that are about to play a great role in God's salvation plan for the next few chapters of Genesis. Me and my wife are really slow when it comes to watching TV programs. We're always years behind, so we're watching 24 at the moment. Anybody seen that? 
It's great. And just before each episode, they give you like a little bio and a little explanation of the characters, you know, what kind of drama they're into, and, and therefore what role they're going to play in the preceding episode in case you missed it. And what's interesting is the Bible's inspired authors had this idea well before uh, the writers of 24. You've got Sarai, the barren one, plot obstacle. You've got Lot, the orphan, cue sad music. And you've got Nahor, the one who keeps providing wives for Abraham's descendants. And finally, you've got Abram, the pagan protagonist. And so we've zoomed from all the nations to one line to one family, and now the narrative zooms straight in to Abram, the main human player. And so there's two points today. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God speaks and what he says he will do. God speaks and what he says he will do. We've already seen in Genesis 1 and from Job this morning that God is a speaking God. We've seen him create everything from absolutely nothing, forming and filling everything from quasars to quail's eggs, from black holes to black pudding, from galaxies to the green, green grass of the garden, absolutely everything the Lord has created, formed, and filled to his glory by speaking a word, let there be, and it was. We've also seen the speaking God use his words to curse, curse the creation due to the sin and the rebellion of human beings. And so when God speaks, something monumental is happening. As he speaks, he reveals his character and so remembering the context that we've just come from in Genesis 10, remembering in Genesis 11, remembering the judgment and the scattering of the nations, it's no small thing that we read in verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram. So if the Lord speaks and reveals more of his character, what does he reveal? Well, firstly, God is merciful. God comes to Abram, and it's the way it's always been, in the garden after the sin of Adam and Eve, it's the Lord who approaches them. Later, the sin of Cain, before and after his rebellion, it's the Lord who approaches him. And here, Abram is a moon-worshipping pagan. And yet God, in his mercy, seeks him out. God is the seeker of sinners. And I'm sure we can all say, Amen to that. We won't ask you to because I don't do call and response here at Charlotte Chapel. But amen in your hearts, that's fine. So we see God is merciful. Second, we see that God is in authority. God commands Abraham to go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Leave it all, your land, your people, your family, everything that you know, go. Sever all ties with them for me. It's no small ask. And yet he's in authority, so he can call Abram to go. The third thing that we see is that we see in God's speech that he is gracious. His unmerited favor towards an underserving world absolutely explodes in technicolor beauty as we see these promises in verses 2 and 3. So let's read it together. From verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless you and those, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
The word bless or blessing is actually used five times in just two verses. And it speaks not only of physical but also spiritual enrichment. And, and these, these five blessings actually contrast the curses that we've just seen from Genesis 3 to 11. The term curse is used about five times. And so it's a reversal of the curse. So the death and the depravity that we've just witnessed in Genesis 3 to 11 is now going to be reversed through the gracious promise of this merciful God through this one undeserving man. We see that these blessings of God, they split into two categories essentially. Uh, Number one, personal blessing and number two, global. So look at me at verse two. Personal blessing. I will make you into a great nation. God calls this childless Iraqi migrant and promises to make him into a great nation. That's children, grandchildren, descendants, territory, borders, a government. That's the word that's being used. I will make you into a great nation. And it's more than ironic, possibly even a little bit cruel, if it wasn't the Lord of glory who had said it to Abram. Because we've already read in chapter 11, verse 30, twice the emphasis on Sarai's barrenness. And so we don't want to lose the reality of this fact. This struggle was real. It's not like they'd only just got married either and they'd been trying for a baby for a few months and they were slightly anxious as to whether they're going to have children. He's 75. So, you know, they've tried it. And in fact, each day for the next 25 years, Abraham is going to meditate upon the promise I will make you into a great nation and look around at the facts of the situation and see the screaming contrast. I think sometimes we often gloss over these truths attributing sometimes supernatural strength to these Old Testament saints. But Abram's foundation of trust and of faith is exactly the same as ours today, the word of the living God. He promises, I will make you into a great nation. So God promises personal blessing in the form of a great nation, also a great name. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. It's kind of an irony because in chapter 10, the Tower of Babel builders, they wanted to make their name great. Uh, And here Abraham receives it by grace. I'm going to say Abram and Abram interchangeably here. That's just what's going to happen because uh, I can't seem to work it out in my mind to just say one name. So I mean the same person, by the way. So God is going to give Abram a great name through his grace. So there's personal blessing. But there's also global blessing. And in fact, this is not a one-way street for Abraham. It's not just blessing to him. Abraham's like a prison. The blessing comes in from the Lord of glory and it shoots out into a million other directions through him. Look at me at verse three. God says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Abraham will be God's representative man, a mediator of sorts. And depending upon their relationship with Abraham will depend upon how God deals with them. And no doubt some of the first readers of this text could shout a hearty amen to that truth. As the Israelites, either on the brink of or in the promised land, they will have already seen what happens to the Egyptians when they try and curse Israel. And they'll have already seen what happens to the uh, the Egyptians that put their faith in the living God and bless Israel as a nation. They too are rescued through the Exodus. And then the claims at the end of verse 3. 
just as the narrative has zoomed in from all the nations of the world to one family, to one man, it now explodes out. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is absolutely staggering. Genesis 10, we have just seen nations scattered, judged, utter rebellion to every facet of human existence. And now God is going to say, these will be blessed and brought near under me through this pagan. In short, that section is saying that Abraham is promised a great blessing in order that he might become a great blessing. And he's not expected to do all this work on his own. It's enough to make anybody feel tired. But if you look at the weight of the responsibility and the promise, it's God who says, I will, seven times. Count that through. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. This is a perfect promise from the perfect sovereign promise keeper. If God calls you to close your eyes and fall, you do it because he's faithful. We even see the promise partly fulfilled later in the passage that we read just now. Abram does come into the land. God shows him that. And there was fulfillment later on in Israel's history. If you'd have looked around during the time of Moses or Solomon, you would have seen the fulfillment of this blessing. They were a nation. They were a great nation. Wealthy, a royal nation. Nations that dealt well with Israel were themselves dealt well bountifully. And yet, we know the story of Israel. We know the story of her failure and we know that though she was called to be God's special people, that though she was called to bless the world, she failed. And so the question still rings, where will restoration and renewal for the world come from? And Paul picks this up in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. The promises that we've just read. Scripture does not say to Abraham's seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, that is Christ. Ultimately, the promise, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, relates to Christ. The ultimate blessing that anyone can receive is Christ. And conversely, the ultimate curse that anyone can receive is when they reject Christ and end in hell. It's in Christ that the recreation and the reversal of the curse is happening fully, finally, and completely. On the cross, Jesus Christ broke the curse that we've just seen in Genesis 3 to 11. The power of sin and death and destruction was broken on the cross as he became a curse for us. And it's through his life and death and resurrection that he's now calling people to himself. We're not being called to go as Abraham was. This was a one-time event fulfilled in time by God's chosen representative and fully worked out in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the one who fulfilled those blessings. So we're not called to go, and yet we are called to come. Christ said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I just wonder this evening whether you know him, whether you have come to him. Do you know 
Jesus Christ, if you come to the one through whom all the nations on the earth will be blessed, and if you don't know him, then what are you waiting for? I don't know whether you're a regular attender here or you just popped in for the first time, but Jesus Christ is the son of God, the one who came from heaven to earth to live the life that we could never live. And he is the one who God is using to bless the world and to renew it, to break the power of the curse of sin in all of our lives and we're to access him by faith. God fulfilled his promise to Abram, his name was made great and yet the Lord Jesus Christ is the name above all names, the name at which every single knee will bow and every single tongue on earth will confess he is Lord. And so do you know him? Not do you go to church, not are you part of a small group, not have you been attending here for years. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the fulfillment of all of these blessings? Is he yours? And if he's not, you simply grasp hold of him by faith. Turning from your sin and trusting in his life and death and resurrection. There's actually a prayer of repentance in the bulletin. If you've got one, read that prayer. Pray it today if you don't know him. And I know many of you do know Jesus Christ and you've known him for a long time. And so the call is exactly the same. We grasp hold of him in faith because this is not just a one-time thing. This is a daily struggle, a daily walk, a daily journey of faith with the Lord as our rock. So we, the church, we have access to Christ by faith and we've been included in this great promise and we've actually been grafted in and we too have now been called to bring blessing to others. Galatians picks that up again. We are those of faith and we have been blessed with believing Abraham. And so it's through the people of the church that now all the nations will get to hear about this great and wondrous promise fulfiller, Jesus Christ. And so the primary way that we can live out this calling is by proclaiming Jesus Christ. And nothing could bring more blessing to the ones that we know than freedom from the curse of sin and death that beholds every single human being born in Adam and not in Christ. As the seed of Abraham's faith, we're entrusted into this curse reversal program with Christ as the head. And so Christ blesses us, the church, in order that we might become a blessing to others. Who do you know? Just think right now. Who is it in your life that you know that needs to hear this message? Who is it that the Lord's been placing on your heart Maybe you might want to commit to sharing Christ with this person that you love, whether it's a neighbor, it might be a child, another family member, a spouse, someone at work. No matter who it is, rich, poor, old, young, everybody needs to hear about this Christ. And pray for opportunities in order to, to, to reach them. So we've seen that God is the God who speaks and he does what he says he will do. He fulfills his promises. And secondly, Genesis 12, four to nine, God's people obey and do what he says. So we've seen that God speaks and he approaches his people in grace. Uh, and yet there is a response when God speaks, there is a response that needs to be made. Look at the command, go. Abraham needed to go. And so faithful obedience, it looks beyond circumstances. That's my sub point. Look with me at verse four. What does Abraham do? So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. There's like an immediacy about Abraham's obedience 
And I don't know about you, but I look at the circumstances of this man's life. He's old, his wife's barren, you know, he's quite comfortable, and he goes. And it actually makes me shudder about the weakness of my own faith at times. There's a reason that they call him the man of faith. Because things are actually practically stacking up against him. He needs to look beyond his circumstances. Here's a few things. Number one, he doesn't actually know where he's going. Look at that in the text. Abraham actually isn't told where to go. God simply says, to the country I will show you. When me and Jodie left Lincoln, uh, we told one of our best friends that we were coming up north to Scotland. um, And he said, what on earth are you going up north for? (laughs) All of the opportunities are down south. Regardless of my friend's grave error, there are loads of opportunities up here, not the types he's thinking about, I don't think. Um, At least I could tell him where I was going so that he could critique or disagree. As Abraham left his homeland, can you imagine his friends being like, hey, Abe, you're packing up, where are you going? Uh, I'm not sure, but God knows. (laughs) Okay. He will have probably received a little bit of stick for that, a little bit more than my friend gave me. So he doesn't know where he's going. Also, there's an 800-kilometer journey from Ur to Haran, where he ends up. Um, That must have been quite testing, too. Every single step along the way, Abraham walking, not knowing where he's going, but trusting in the faithful God to lead him there. I've got these pictures of Lot in the back of my mind, in a child in the back seat saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Abraham's like, I don't know, because I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) But God knows. Or maybe his wife. Sarai, maybe as, as wives often do in their wisdom, saying, are you sure you're not lost, dear? Well, no is the truthful answer because he doesn't know where he's going, but also kind of like, yes. Number one, he doesn't know where he's going. Number two, he leaves the metropolis. Ur was a bustling third century uh, millennium BC super city. So it had great trade routes because of the two rivers. Um, it had expanded, it had developing bronze workers, a rising middle class, artisans, uh, fascinating three-bedroom buildings, uh, great temples. Uh, there, were, um, there was great language development in Ur, Ur and uh, a complex monetary system with advanced agriculture. And he was leaving for a tent in the desert. Now that's sacrificing opportunities, not coming to Scotland instead of London. He basically leaves Edinburgh's West End for a traveling caravan, or more like he leaves Tokyo for a pop-up tent. That's probably more accurate. So he doesn't know where he's going. He leaves the comfort of Ur. And thirdly, the journey is going to be tough. He takes along his possessions, the people that he had with him for who knows how long, a grueling journey in heat and dust, and it was dangerous as well. And so there's absolutely no question about it. God was demanding complete and utter allegiance from Abraham. Give up everything, land, people, household, comfort. The Lord wanted all of him. And the basis for Abraham to trust God was his word and his word alone. And what does Abraham do? Have a look down at verses uh, four and five. Lot went with him. Abraham went, Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left for Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions he had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. That's why Abraham is held up as the father of the faith. Because he couldn't see the promises of God or the necessary circumstances um, 
that those promises would arise, and yet he trusted in the abiding word of the good God and his faithful character. And this call to leave all trusting in what can't be seen reminds us of the gospel. Equally, we're not given a floodlight to our future, but the Lord says, I will give you my word and it will be a lamp unto your path. Every step, I will be with you. One step at a time. We're called to sacrifice material goods, but we're also called to look ahead and not build our treasure here on earth. We're not asked to leave earth, but we are called to renounce making too many roots here on earth and to build treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth. And I just wonder how you're doing with that in your walk, in your trusting of the Lord Jesus Christ. How am I doing with that? Do you trust God's promises enough and believe that what is to come is of more value than what's already here? Or do you live more like this is the promised land? What does the way you use money, resources, and time say about what your ultimate hope is? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. Abram did see the land in the end of verse 5. They arrived. But more than that, look at verse 6. Abraham actually traveled through the land. It says as far as the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he kind of went on a wee tour of the Canaanite countryside. um, And he makes it, but there's opposition. There's difficulty. We've already been introduced to the Canaanites in chapter 9. Noah curses Canaan and his sons. uh, Coupled with the fact that this, this great tree is likely to be a pagan worship site. And so the narrative is telling us that, that Abraham has come into contact with a perverse and pagan people who are the enemies of God, and we'll see that as it unfolds in the rest of Scripture. And so again, it would be really easy for Abraham to question, why, why have you brought me here? Not only have you called me away from my people, but I'm now in the promised land with these pagans, with these enemies of God. And once again, we see the gracious and merciful Lord sustaining him. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and reaffirmed his promise to say, to your offspring, I will give this land. This is strengthening and sustaining grace. Because the Lord not only spoke as he did before, but now he appears to Abram. And the response is the only response that any of us can make when we hear from the living God is to worship. Faithful obedience leads to worship. Verse 8, from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. He builds altars, he sacrifices, and ultimately, verse 8, he called on the name of the Lord. This man of faith in obedience now worships the living God. Land is is super important in the Old Testament. So Canaan wasn't a mere physical land, but it was actually a a spiritual promised land, a type of heaven. And so Abram earnestly sought it with all that he had. And the New Testament picks up on this idea. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews says uh, in chapter 11, uh, verses 9 and 10, it was by faith 
that Abram made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So Abram, even in God's command and promise, was looking far beyond physical Canaan to a greater city where he would dwell with a living God. And so his obedience was based on, as we heard this morning, God being God, God being the faithful God of his word. And Abram's life was a life that walked daily the walk of faith from Ur to Haran to the promised land of Canaan and as he walked through that land. He was a man marked by awe and worship of the living God, imperfect but faithfully obedient. And he found God to be faithful to his promises even though he didn't see hardly any of them complete. The Israelites, 500 years later, they were fortunate to be able to see God's promise fulfilled. They were in the land. They were a nation, as we've mentioned. And so, how much more for us are we called to obey the Lord's word and trust in his faithful promise, being able to look back on his faithful walking with us over the hundreds and thousands of years, faithful walking with his people? This passage that we've just read is calling us to see the promise-keeping God fulfilling all that he said through Abraham and then fully in Jesus Christ. And he now continues that promise through the church as he rescues sinners like me and like you and he uses us to bring about global blessing and reversing the curse in this cursed world. We're to look at this account and we're to hear God say to us, I am faithful to my word, to my promises And you can rely on my character. Trust in me. Worship me. And so the question easily creeps in in my life. In what ways am I not trusting God and his promises? What ways am I not trusting his faithful character? Ask the Lord in your own heart to reveal areas in your life that you're not trusting him. Repent of those Look to the life of Abraham. Look to the account of this passage in Genesis 12 all the way through the life of God's people in Israel to the point of Jesus Christ, his only son, who he gave up in order that he might rescue us to himself. God is faithful to all that he promises. John Calvin said, God never calls for faith without the sure foundation of his promise. God commands us to repent. He calls us to repent, but then the promise is and you will be saved. As believers, the, the Lord calls us to trust and obey and the promise is that he'll guide and protect and sustain us, even in life's darkest and most dangerous and unknown journey. And we're to know that the promised land of the new creation is far, far greater than anything on this earth that we have ever known. And so back to the illustration, you remember that friend at school that either caught you or let you fall onto the floor? A silly illustration, and it doesn't quite compute with the seriousness of the promises of the Lord in Scripture, but in a similar way, there is is a similarity. You can trust the promises of the one who says to you, come and lean on me. For the Lord will not just catch us but he promises to embrace us, to guard us, 
and to protect us. And if we walk faithfully with him, on that great day, he will lift us up, he will look at us, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And what a day that will be for God's people. Let's pray together.